Well, um, Holy Week, I just can't believe that we're already here. Holy Week is, is just a beautiful part of the church's liturgy, and I know some of you didn't grow up in liturgical churches, but for those of you who did, in the Catholic Church or High Lutheran, Methodist, and who had uh, the, the liturgical cycle going through the year, uh, you know about Holy Week. And each day of Holy Week has a name, and each name is referring to specific scriptural references that, that you parse through each day that, that takes us through the events of Holy Week. And, and actually, in the Eastern churches, it started yesterday. That was Lazarus Saturday in the Eastern Orthodox churches. And uh, it commemorates, of course, uh, Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. Today is Palm Sunday, and it commemorates Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, uh, kicking off the last week of, of his life before the crucifixion. Tomorrow is Fig Monday. I bet you didn't hear that one every day, right? Fig Monday. That's dealing with the cleansing of the temple and the cursing of the fig tree, which gives it its name. And then we've got Holy Tuesday, which is dealing with the ten virgins, five foolish and five wise and the the lamps and all of that. And it's dealing with readiness and preparation. Spy Wednesday is dealing with the counterpoint between Judas and his uh, dirty dealings with the Sanhedrin going off and meeting clandestinely. There's another word you could look up. I should say it right, though, right? Clandestinely uh, with the Sanhedrin and and, uh, betraying Jesus against Mary, whose just full-throated devotion is pouring, you know, the perfume onto Jesus and, and drying him with her tears. And so the two of those juxtaposed together, giving us quite uh, a contrast uh, but uh, Spy Wednesday gets its name from Judas, of course. And then we move to Maundy Thursday. And Maundy is uh, dealing with his Last Supper, basically, and, and the uh, happenings in Gethsemane after the supper. And so Jesus does several things during the Last Supper. He washes his disciples' feet, he institutes the Eucharist, and he gives a new commandment. And the new commandment, if you say that in Latin, is mandatum novum. And so you take mandatum and you put it into Old English, and you get Mandi. So Mandi is really commemorating the new commandment that Jesus gives uh, at that Last Supper, which is, love each other as I have loved you. And, and then he moves into John 17, where he is giving this huge prayer of oneness and connection, and then he moves into Gethsemane. And then, of course, we have Good Friday, which is the crucifixion and the burial, and then Holy Saturday rounds it out as a day of rest. The Eastern Church calls it the Great Sabbath, and it's a time when... Uh, Jesus is resting in the tomb. And what happens also on Good Friday and and Holy Saturday, there is no Mass, there is no uh, services at all. The the church is quiet. The light of presence is extinguished. There's a candle that is the light of the presence in the liturgical church. It's, It's extinguished at that point. The cross is covered or taken out of the church completely. Uh, We typically cover our cross with a purple cloth, which is what um, many of the churches do. And, uh, and then, of course, Easter Sunday. So that, which is dealing with the resurrection. So that deals, that kind of rounds out our Holy Week. And what we've been doing for the last five weeks, because this is the sixth and final Sunday of Lent, is taking a few of those scriptural ref- references and showing how they work in terms of preparing us in this 40-day period, which we talked about as a symbolic number that means a time of trial and testing or initiation into a rebirth which is what Lent was designed to do. And, and anytime you see people going through a fortiness in the Bible, that is the primary message. But if you take a look at your handouts, 
I put them uh, in there because it's important for us to kind of review what we've been talking about as we take this last week and we talk about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and we take that scriptural reference and see if that puts a cap on what it is that we're really doing here. In the first Sunday of Lent, we talked about singing rocks. And this also had to do with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. So we're kind of getting a twofer there. But this focused on when the people are calling out his name and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, or in, in uh, Hebrew, Hoshiana, which means save us, we beseech you. The uh, religious authorities become very irked and they tell, they tell Jesus, tell them to be quiet. They're anathema here. And he says, even if you could make them quiet, the rocks themselves would cry out. And so this idea of creation itself, singing, praising, attesting to the truth of the presence of God, is what we're supposed to be practicing ourselves. This is the first step in the 40ness, the first step of moving toward Easter through this period of Lent, was to practice awareness, practice actual presence and really see what we can do moment by moment. Paul talks about continuous prayer. That's what he means. Not a continuous string of words, but a continuous awareness of God's presence that allows us to become more and more sensitized to what's right here in front of us. Not all the stuff that's constantly spinning in our head. And then we talked about overturning tables, which deals with the the happenings on Fig Monday when Jesus cleanses the temple and he upsets the the status quo, upsets the natural order, and then he curses the fig tree. And those two juxtaposed are telling us what the message is, that from the outside the temple looked like it was the centerpiece of, of Israel's national life. It was a centerpiece of their faith, and it should have sustained them spiritually, but inside it had become a den of thieves. Inside it had become corrupt. The tree looked verdant and green and beautiful from the outside, and Jesus was hungry from a distance. He gets up close and finds there's no fruit. It's the same image that we see in both cases. Something that looks good from the outside, something that had been nurturing before, has now become barren. As we practice this awareness practice this presence. We have to become sensitized to what we're actually seeing in ourselves. Our thought patterns, our set beliefs, our behavioral obsessive compulsive patterns. What are they telling us about what's going on? What are they telling us about what we really believe down deep? And are we willing to overturn our own interior tables? Are we willing to challenge our set beliefs? Are we willing to let go of what it is that we think we believe in favor of what's really right in front of us? from kneeling height, was taking a look at what it is that we see when we become aware, when we're willing to start letting go of the blinding set belief systems that we have either inherited or have built up in our lives. What is it that we actually start to see? To become willing to see what's right there. What is revealed to us in the foot washing ceremony that Jesus does with his friends, which was an outrageous act, that Peter didn't want to take part of because it was so demeaning to Jesus, especially as their teacher, but even just as a Jew, was that our God is an unassuming God. He's a servant God. He's a God that even though he's the creator of heaven and earth, he still serves us, exists and lives to serve us, takes pleasure in serving us, and will never see farther than we can from kneeling height when we allow our perspective to drop That's why Jesus keeps holding up a child as the emblem of kingdom. When we allow ourselves to get to that perspective, we can see what really is there. And we can start to see 
how God operates in our lives, how we're supposed to be operating in each other's lives. And then last week, we had our big hoedown kind of thing, of course, but what we talked about was this epicness of the scriptures, the epicness of the ancient world. And EPIC is an acronym, if you weren't here, that stands for Experiential, Participatory, Image-Based, and Communal. And Leonard Sweet, who is a, a Methodist pastor and writer, has said this is the way the youngest generations are now processing information, as opposed to the modern world, which is propositional and representational and word-based and individualistic. Young people are processing in this very different way. The key for us, though, is that the ancients were EPIC too. They weren't proposing logical, rational truths that we were supposed to take and, and concretize in creeds and memorize and pledge allegiance to. It was an experiential participation in God's grace, in God's presence, in the relationship that we had that was word-based, not logically based. I'm sorry, it was image-based, not logically based in words. And then finally, always communal. Always taking part of this within the community of our neighbors and friends and even our enemies, as Jesus would say. And that the only way that we're really going to answer the question of who Jesus is to us is through this epic participation. Because it's not rational. Every time we come to a rational notion of who Jesus is, all we end up doing is fighting with each other. But if we really participate in who Jesus is, we will be convinced of what we're convinced of. We will know who he is, and it will change us. It will radically change our lives. And that is something that we can all agree on. This is how far we got through Lent. Today, I want to try to take, again, the passage of Jesus coming into Jerusalem and take a look and see what that has to teach us about where all of this preparation is leading, where it's going to take us. Because once we can take the blinders off, we can begin to see God in everything, in everyone, and not just where we expect him to be mentally. And this is the significance of Palm Sunday. This is what Jesus is trying to get across to us as he does the things he does and makes the deliberate choices he makes. Seeing the truth of things, seeing them as they are, not as expected, not as imagined, and no longer judging each moment, each person as significant or insignificant, but starting to see the significance in every single moment, no matter how insignificant it may seem to be at the moment. That's the turning point. That's looking at life from kneeling height, from a child's viewpoint. And everything begins to change at that point. I wanted to read this little quote from Mother Teresa, and you can follow along in the handouts there. She said, I have an opportunity to be with Jesus 24 hours a day, seeing the face of God in everything, everyone, all the time, and his hand in every happening. This is what it means to be contemplative in the heart of the world seeing and adoring the presence of Jesus, especially in the lowly appearance of bread and in the distressing disguise of the poor. Each one of them is Jesus in disguise. That's perfect. Seeing Jesus, seeing the Father himself as they are, unassuming, immersed, imbued, you know, in every face that we see. This is what Jesus kept trying to get across over and over again. You know? Don't look somewhere out there. The kingdom is right here. 
I'm right here. Father is right here. We imagine that we know Jesus. We have this mental image. In fact, everyone, for just a second, close your eyes. Close your eyes and imagine Jesus' face just as you imagine him. Just see him in your mind's eye. Look at him. Look at the details. Eyes, hair, nose, face, features. Okay, you got it? Now open your eyes, and if you have your handouts, look at the picture on the page and tell me how close you were. (laughs) Now obviously we don't know what Jesus looks like, but forensic scientists have been looking at skeletons from the period, Palestinian, Judean men, Galilean men of that period in the first century, and looking at all their characteristics, and they did one of those forensic things where you take a skull and you rebuild the tissue and you do all this, and then you do your best guess at hair color and this, and from the context of the times and the writings about it, how they wore their hair, this is as close as they could come to what Jesus would have looked like if he was a typical Galilean man. Not only that, do you know what the average height of a Galilean man in the first century was, and they can get this from the femur bones, right? It was five foot one. He would have looked like a hobbit to us. I know, that's what I'm talking about. See, that's the reaction we get because we have this other image. How many of you saw Jesus with long flowing hair? You know, the long aquiline nose. Maybe even blue eyes, a la Tab Hunter, you know, it could be tall. I mean, the Shroud of Turin is over six feet, right? Now, could Jesus have been dealing with different kinds of recessive genes and had all... Yeah, he could have, absolutely. But think about this. When the Jewish authorities wanted to arrest him, they had to hire one of his friends to point him out because they couldn't pick him out in the crowd. If he was six feet tall with blue eyes and long hair... See what I'm getting at? The men wore their hair short. They wore their beards cropped. They were dark. They were swarthy in color. Jesus would have been powerfully built if he was a mason or a carpenter. The word there, tecton, just means a workman, so we don't exactly know what he did. Traditionally, it was carpentry, but he would have been strong to do that kind of work. There were no power tools back then. And, you know, he was, he was working it out. But we have, the, the, the reality could be so different that we would be shocked. And if we are prepared to see Jesus for what he really is, not just outward appearances, not through some theological lens or religious lens, but really see. We'll walk right past him, searching for him, because we won't recognize him. And this is what we're trying to get. Look at Isaiah 53, too. This is traditionally understood to be a prophecy about the Messiah, about Jesus. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him or appearance that we should be attracted to him. Are we ready to accept a Jesus who is not attractive, who is not stately, who doesn't stand out from the crowd? These are the questions we have to start asking ourselves. And if we haven't done the job of building our awareness and become ready to overturn the tables, to challenge our set beliefs, we will be hanging on to images, hanging on to attitudes that will blind us at the moment of our real visitation, which is what Palm Sunday is all about. This is what's going on here. Jesus asks his followers in Mark Mark and Matthew, who do you say that I am? And this is a central question. This is a central question that we all need to take a look at. It was a central question then, and it's a central question now. 
Who do you say that Jesus is? And this is where that question all comes to a head. At Palm Sunday, when Jesus enters the kingdom, enters Judea, enters Jerusalem through the gates, this triumphal entry, couched between Lazarus Saturday, the rising, uh, raising of the dead of Lazarus, and the cleansing of the temple and the withering of the fig tree. And so if you think about it, when Jesus, whose fame and popularity has been growing, actually raises Lazarus from the dead, his popularity, his profile is at a peak. And when he enters Jerusalem and gets his crazy welcome, and the next day cleanses the temple, overturns the temple, that's where his threat is at its peak in the minds of the religious authorities. And that's the last straw for them. They realize his fame has grown too large, his threat to our power base is too great, we've got to get rid of this guy. And it's the beginning of the end. And it was no surprise to Jesus or his followers. But why did Jesus go to Jerusalem in the first place? Why would he do that? His disciples begged him not to come. Remember the song, Mama Told Me Not to Come? They told him not to come. They knew what was happening. He knew what was happening. But Jesus was an ultra, ultra observant and orthodox Jew. He followed Judaism to the nth degree. And also, he knew what was happening, but he knew that he wasn't going to shrink from his responsibility, even though he wavered a little bit at Gethsemane, right? But there are three pilgrimage festivals that are listed in the Law of Moses in which all the people, all the men at least, were commanded to come back to Jerusalem, come back to the temple, and fulfill their religious obligations. And the first was Pesach, or Passover. And all of these are agricultural holidays. Pesach is set in the springtime. It's at the time of the barley harvest. All right. Barley ripens before wheat, and so at the time of the barley harvest, they had this festival where they were thanking God and praying for a good harvest. And then there is Shavuot, which happens seven weeks later. That's at the time of the wheat harvest. And then in the fall, there's Sukkot, or tabernacles, or booths, and that is the time of the olive and grape harvest. And so at these three times during the year, everyone was commanded to come back to Jerusalem. This is the feast of the Passover, and Jesus comes back, even though he knows that he is in grave danger by doing this. He travels to Jerusalem, and let's take a look at Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Sion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so, of course, we in the West, we don't get what it is that is really going on here because this is part of Jewish culture, and of course they understood it fully. For Jesus to enter the city on a donkey, if he had entered on a horse, watch out. If he comes in on a horse, if a king comes into your city on a horse, he means war. But if he comes on a donkey, he means peace. This goes back to the time of David some thousand years before and is cultural throughout the Middle Eastern kingdoms. 
And so the donkey, but Jesus comes in on the foal, the colt of a donkey. So he's really laying it on thick here. He's saying he is coming in as this humble, unassuming person. He keeps trying to get the message across to his disciples and to everybody who he is, and they keep misinterpreting him. Culturally, how could he have been any clearer than to come in on the colt of a donkey? The prophecy that, that uh, is talked about here is from Zechariah. Jesus coming as the promised Mashiach would have come. The palms, what's up with the palms? You know, cutting the palms. Well, the palm to the Jews was a symbol of triumph. It was a symbol of victory. And not just to the Jews, but to the most of the ancient world, the same thing. For Judaism, the date palm was a symbol of peace and plenty. And it was customary to wave palms to victorious kings. So it became a symbol of triumph over death, over the flesh. Even the martyrs' tombs for hundreds of years afterwards in the catacombs were cut with palm fronds to just symbolize all of those ideas that comes with the palms. And so the palms are very important to lay your cloak down, to lay branches down as a red carpet approach for the king, of course, was part of this tradition as well. And then there's Hosanna. Hosanna is, uh, we can see it most clearly in a quote from Psalm 118. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. You all know that one, right? But save us now, we beseech you. Lord, Lord, we beg you, send prosperity now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. And so this save us now, we beseech you, Lord. Literally in Hebrew is Hoshiana Anayave. Hoshiana. We, as we transliterate it into Greek and Latin, we come up with Hosanna. We think of it as just a appellate, just a praise word, right? But really it means save us. We beseech you. And so the question then becomes, of course, save us from what? What were the people asking to be saved from? And this is where it starts to get down to the crux of things. Because every person who was viewing Jesus as he's writing in, and all this is going on, is looking at him from a different point of view. And we've got to find out what point of view we're coming from if we're really going to clear the decks and be able to see where we are in terms of seeing what is really real. For the people themselves, just the rank-and-file people, and of course the zealots to whom they were tied, the zealots were the guerrillas of their day. They were the ones who were trying to subvert Roman authority, causing riots, um, assassinations, doing whatever they could to de- destabilize the Roman occupation as a preparation for the Messiah to come in, the Mashiach, and, and lead them in a holy war against the oppressors. And so the zealots, also called the Kanaim in Aramaic, they were looking for a warrior king. They were looking to Jesus as that. Was he really the Messiah? Was he the one who was going to come in, galvanize the nation against Rome, start the revolution, and save them from the oppression of the Roman occupation? One view. Then you've got the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the power elite, right? They looked at Jesus as a threat, pure and simple. He was a threat to their power base. The power base of the Pharisees was the people themselves because they set themselves up as the lawyers of the law, the doctors of the law. And they made it so complicated that nobody could interpret it, just like lawyers sometimes do, right? So you've got to go to them in order to find out whether you are clean, whether you are pure enough to be able to be in community. For the Sadducees, it was the temple system, and they worked hand in glove. If the Pharisees said you were unclean, you had to go to the temple and deal with the Sadducees who would take you through the purification rites to allow you to come back into community again. Jesus is cutting right at the heart of that power. 
first with the people themselves, and now by overturning the tables with the institution of the temple system itself. And so this is the last straw for them. The Romans looked at Jesus in the same way, but from a little bit more of a distance, right? Anyone who looked like they were practicing sedition against the state, they were a threat, and they were going to be put down, and they were going to be put down mercilessly. And Rome would make an example of people if they if they got out of line to tamp down. Really what the Romans were worried about was the uh, flow of tax money because that's really... The, uh, the Roman Empire has sometimes been called by historians a, an empire without a soul. It's not that they believed something so much, it's that they had an iron fist on making sure that everything ran smoothly. What about Jesus' followers? How did they look at him? Well, they did look at him as the Mashiach as well. And they didn't understand what Jesus was trying to tell them about the difference in terms of the way he was fulfilling that title and the way they expected him to fill that, fulfill that title. They were looking for Jesus to establish a new order and save them from the anonymity of their poverty, of their marginalization. They were looking to be able to hang on to his coattails and actually move into places of power. In the, just the previous chapter in Matthew, there's this great scene. After three years of traveling with Jesus, after Jesus telling them he's going to have to go to the cross, James and John send their mother to Jesus to ask him to petition from Jesus that they will be able to sit on his right hand and his left hand when he institutes his kingdom. They don't get it. They don't understand. You've got to just see Jesus slapping his forehead and saying, what does it take to get you guys to understand? Well, in a couple of days, I'm going to wash your feet and outrage you further and see if maybe that gets you to understand. And the day after that, I'm going to die on this cross. And if that doesn't do it, I don't know what does. You know? And it takes them another 40 days after that to be able to get to the point where they started to see what was really going on. And so everybody has a different viewpoint. Everybody has a different look, has a different understanding But really what it comes down to, as Jesus, as hard as he is, trying to show us who he is, we only see what we need. We only see what we want in him to be fulfilled. And all these people who are crying out his name and adulating him in five days, they're going to go from Hosanna to crucify. Because how fast do we turn on someone who disappoints us? Hmm? The key here is that Jesus is not here to give us what we want. He's inviting us to see what is real. And when we do that, we'll get everything we need. That's the key. We look to Jesus to fulfill our desires, whatever they happen to be. But Jesus is simply showing us, if we're willing, if we're willing to go through this process we're talking about, what really is real right here right now. Who is this Jesus who's writing into your life? Because that's exactly what he's doing. He's writing into your life. Every single moment he's writing into your life. Can we look beyond our fears? Can we look beyond our desires to see who he really is? To see what it is he's showing us over and over and over. Who do you say that I am, he asks. Who do you say that I am? You see, this real Jesus is radical. This real Jesus goes places that we don't want to go, that we think maybe we're not supposed to go. This real Jesus will upset us, will disturb us. 
And he will not leave us unchanged if we really engage. He can't possibly leave us unchanged because he is so radical in what he's trying to get across to us. Are you afraid of change? A lot of us are. If you're afraid of change, it means you're invested in the status quo, right? You spent time building what you've got. And if it changes, then what happens? This is who I am. I built this. Or that TV show. I built this. I built this. And you're going to tell me that I've got to take it back down again? I don't think so. Then you will see Jesus as a threat, right? Are you afraid that you're not going to change? Are you afraid that things in your life are not going to change? Well, then you're feeling marginalized, right? Not invested in the system. You're feeling marginalized, and you want it to change. And now you're looking at Jesus as Savior, but in a fixer sort of way. You want him to come in and fix what is wrong with your life. Come to fix all our problems, you know? But again, we're still just seeing Jesus through our need. Take a look at Luke 19. When he approached Jerusalem... He saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Here Jesus turns prophet and he's looking ahead, you know, some 30 years to the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman army when they finally did ignite the war that they were looking for Jesus to ignite. But here's the key phrase. You did not recognize the time of your visitation. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. The tragedy is that the people did not see the truth of what Jesus was trying to bring them. They did not recognize who he was because they were looking through the filter of their needs and seeing him in all these different ways except as he was. Even his own followers didn't get it at the time. And so the irony here, Hoshiana, save us, misses the whole point of salvation as Jesus is trying to get across to us. Jesus is showing us, Jesus is inviting us to follow a way to truth, to follow. Remember epic? Experiential, participatory. He's inviting us to follow a way to truth and liberation. If you follow my commands, then you're my followers and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. There's the formulation. There's the epicness of it, right? He's asking us to follow this way ourselves That's the salvation. And we're looking, the people were looking for someone to do it for them in a passive way. And Jesus says, that's not the way it works. You can't do this passively. I can't do this for you. I open the door. I open the way. I've given everything that I have to give, or I will tomorrow. But you have to walk through it. This is what Jesus is showing us. Not to give us what we think we need, but to show us how to move forward into kingdom, into connection with Father. And we do the same, don't we? In the midst of this plenty of God's continuous presence, in the midst of everything that he has already poured out, we're starving to death. 
because we're still looking for something, striving for something that we think is still not here. Would you know Jesus if he were standing right here in front of you, if he were in this room? Would we recognize him as who he is? I wanted to read just a little paragraph from Richard Rohr that I think kind of puts a point on it. He writes that prayer lives in pure open moments of right here, right now. This is enough. This is fullness. If it is not right here, right now, it doesn't exist. If we don't know God now, why would we know God later? If we don't go know God now, why would we know God later? You think somehow in the next life something is going to be presented to us in a different way? But maybe not. Maybe if we can't learn to see from kneeling height, if we can't learn to value the things that God values, to look through unassuming eyes, humble eyes, to see an unassuming and humble God, at any point, we would walk right past him because we're looking for the lights of Vegas. We're looking for something that we think is spectacular. If we don't see God now, would the eyes be prepared to see God later? The mystics say no. We will not recognize God later if we cannot recognize God now. It's a matter of seeing God now through the shadow and through the disguise, which is pretty much what Teresa said, right? To see God in these poor, these destitute that she was holding as they were dying in Calcutta at the houses of the poor, she could see Jesus in that disguise. And Rora is saying the same thing. If you can't do that, if you can't see Jesus in this person right in front of you, that you have a choice to love or not, do you really think you're going to see him later? Lord, Lord, let me into the kingdom. Depart from me. I never knew you because we didn't get to that place in our relationship where you could see me, right? Think about this for just a second. What if the judgment of God that we talk about all the time is not so much God's decision about us but our ability to see God as God is. Maybe that's the dividing line. Maybe that's the judgment. Our ability to see God as he is already presenting and has been presenting as long as there's been creation. Will we recognize the moment of our visitation? Because if we can't do it now, will we do it then? God has already made his decision about us. He loves us. Always has, always will doesn't change. What's our decision? When are we going to make this decision? As always, it's got to be now. It has to be now. And this is the hardest thing that we can do. To enter our moments without that kind of judgment. Why was Jesus so emphatic about not judging? Because as soon as you do, you create this distance. You create this objectivity. You are judging things as significant or not significant. People as important or not important. And you're not seeing God anymore in everything the insignificant, the seemingly unimportant. If we can't do that now, Jesus is asking us, how are we going to do it later? How does this work? Jesus and the Father are all around us, every moment. And every moment is Palm Sunday. The underscoring has happened. Can you hear the angels' music? (laughs) Every moment is Palm Sunday. Every moment, Jesus is riding into our lives as he is. 
Are we prepared to see him, to turn every moment of our lives into the moment of our visitation? Because in truth, that's exactly what is going on. When Jesus rides in, can we celebrate him? If we haven't practiced awareness, continuous prayer, if we haven't been willing to overturn the tables of our own set beliefs, our own attitudes, our own obsessive compulsive behavior patterns, if we haven't become willing to see the truth of significance in insignificance, then we're going to miss the moment of our visitation. If we do, not to worry. God remains undaunted here. He will continue to show up every single moment because that's who he is and that's what he does over and over again. But when will we make the decision to see him showing up over and over to begin to live the new life that the resurrection of Jesus promises all of us. The kingdom is waiting. How long are we going to wait before we finally enter? This is what Jesus is asking us on Palm Sunday. He's writing in, see me, see me as I am. Take pleasure in the same things that I take pleasure in so that we become one just as I and my Father are one. That's his prayer. It's up to us to fulfill it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the traditions of the church. Thank you for the liturgy. Thank you for things that we don't even really practice anymore but that can come to our rescue, can come to our aid when we need them, that they're there. And they're, they're huge teaching opportunities, learning opportunities. Help us to see them as such. Help us to learn from the most unexpected directions. Open ourselves up to this. And help us to see you as you really are, as you're trying to relate to us and to stop trying to fit square lives into round relationships. Father, we love you. We want to do this better and better. Take us all through this holy week. Give us the desire and the initiative to dive in in these last few days to prepare ourselves for the miracle of the new life that you have for us. Thank you, Father. Never let us forget we can only do any of this because you did it first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand.